Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be here. If the, uh, if the humidity starts to make you feel a bit claustrophobic and spare a thought for Jonah. <laughs> Last Sunday night, um, when I was here at church, I was sitting down there and I rang the, the taxi to go home. Um, and it's really funny when you book a taxi in Rodonga because you have to, you ring up and you say, hello, could you send me a what to? And then they say, where to? And you say, no, what to? Because what to is the designation of a wheelchair taxi with two spaces. It's called a what to. And the lady said, we haven't got a what to. There's, there are no wheelchair taxis operating tonight. And I thought, well, I, I'm not sure quite what I'll do. I didn't come with Karen. She was feeling unwell. And um, I didn't want to ring her up and say, I need you to bring the car. And just at the same moment, Chris Waldmorens came over and, and he said, how are you getting home tonight? Just right then. And I said, with you. <laughs> or something. <laughs> or something. <laughs> something like that. But it was fantastic. It was, a, it was a moment of providence. God provided what I needed instantly. It really was great because I didn't want to have to go and ask somebody, you know, go, go and case the car park and look for big vehicles. We actually pulled it all apart and put it in, in his little tiny Toyota hatchy little thing. Anyway, what I'm getting at is that provision generally the way we think of God's providence in his provision is that he, he gives us the thing that we need, the thing that we ask for, and that it's good when he does so. But that's a limited view of provision. The last verse in Jonah chapter 1 wasn't read last week when David was preaching because it's part of this week's message, and it reads this way. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's not necessarily good provision. But even still, our idea of Jonah and the whale is that... Hello, you Bethany. Some services. Oh, yeah. What services are you providing? Well, you sound great up here, but they can't hear you down there. Oh, all right. So should I be giving this back to you or just ignoring just it? Just leave it. Wait on that. That, that, well, that'll do. Put it like this. So how's that? Is that better? No? Yes? Good morning. <laughs> Last Sunday night I was sitting there. <laughs> so how up to speed are you? You know, you know where you are, why we're here? Yeah, all that. Yeah. We tend to think of the whale, uh, well, this is the way I have tended to think of the whale, as sort of God's provision to get Jonah out of a bad situation. He's, you know, the, the, sea, the storm is raging, the ship's in trouble, um, and we think of the whale as, as God's provision to solve that problem, but I don't think that's really what's going on. There's a lot more to it. And interestingly, this is not the last time in the book of Jonah that God will provide for him something from the animal kingdom. More of that next week, I imagine. 
it, when David was telling us last Sunday about his journey on the um, spirit of Tasmania and the, the terrible storm and the seasickness and all of that, oddly enough, it happened to me, but I'm, I'm almost twice David's age. And so when I was at sea, it was called the Empress of Australia. And we crossed the Bass Strait. And it was about half as big, which means it tossed and turned twice as much. But I remember seeing the, 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 the staff of the ship closing all these internal wooden louvery things so that you couldn't see what was going on in Bass Strait. David was telling us that the, in the ancient world, going to sea was perilous and terrible, and it was. There's only one thing worse, perhaps, than being on a ship in a storm, and that's being off the ship in the same storm, and that's what happened to Jonah. But remember... The ancient world is a world of, it's so different to ours. The understanding isn't scientific in the way that we perhaps think of cause and effect, and we've become familiar with knowing why things happen. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that so much. And so the sea was not just the sea, it was the kingdom of demons. This is why Jesus walks on the water. For us, that's a miracle of physics in a way. But in the ancient world, walking on the water was more a miracle of of dominion over the powers of darkness that normally sucked people down just like that. So when, when, the, uh, when the sailors throw Jonah overboard, that's a terrible moment. When the whale comes and envelops him in his mouth, and let's stop for a minute and decide whether we're going to call it a whale. I'm looking over here now because you know what that is, don't you? Yes. Have you ever seen anything more wanting to be turned into a whale than our drum box. Like, it's just, it's just fantastic, isn't it? I think it was Greg came over last Sunday morning at the end of the message and he said to me, so we had a tent, are we going to have a whale? And I said, no. And then I said, yes. <laughs> oh, lovely. The whale, the word whale comes from the King James Bible in Matthew when Matthew talks about what well, Jesus in Matthew talking about the sign of Jonah, he, he uses the phrase in the belly of the whale. But that's the King James Bible. The Good News Bible brought it into modern, modern language with a, a, a great fish. But I tend to keep slipping back to the whale because it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? But the most persuasive um, translation that I've come across, and there are several others, but in the Phillips translation, it's called a giant sea monster. And why I think that's good, important, is because of what I was alluding to before. The under-the-sea the under world was full of monsters. Read in the Old Testament about Leviathan. Leviathan turns up in the book of Job and in Psalms and in one of the minor prophets, I think, and it's a sea monster. And there are monsters under there, and it's a very very possible way to translate this is that Jonah was swallowed by a sea monster. Think of that. Because the children are with us today, Bethany and I made a friendly whale, not a sea monster. As teeth go, they're friendly teeth, aren't they? Wouldn't you say? Almost welcoming. <laughs> I'm going to invite um, Natalie and Tim to come and read for us. And... Uh, if you're, if you're in any doubt as to the whale not being a happy provision, just stop for a moment and think about pH. 
There they go, disappearing into the belly of the whale. I needed to have two because Natalie said she wouldn't go into the whale without Tim to protect her. So it's hard to find. Did you want to say something from the belly? I was just checking as we. <laughs> it's great. It's all good. The human, my GP told me that a human stomach has a pH of around one, which is stronger than hydrochloric acid. So where Tim and Natalie are right now is in no sense a comfortable ride. That Jonah was not in the Captain Cook lounge on a 747. He was in a yucky, horrible, awful, gooey, tight, claustrophobic, humid, hot, nasty place. Let's hear the reading this morning now from Jonah chapter 2. Over to you. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my, my cry. <laughs> you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, you, oh. <laughs> Lord, my God, brought. My life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, Salvation comes from the Lord. Well done. <laughs> yes. Bible reading doesn't normally win applause, but uh, that, was a, that was a good performance. Thank you both. I hope you understood what that was about. 25 times in the prayer from the belly of the whale, Jonah uses a personal pronoun. 25 times. That, that makes sense. If you're Stuck in the, in the horrible belly of the whale, I guess the only thing you're really concerned about is your own survival. But we've all prayed prayers like that, haven't we? God help me. And when we get ourselves tangled up and when our life becomes messy and awful, generally through our own choices, we do become self-occupied. Think of the contrast now between Jonah, who the Lord called to prophesy grace and forgiveness to a whole city with the man who now uses 25 personal pronouns in one prayer. It's a very long way, isn't it? He's no longer speaking to people about their deliverance and their grace. He's begging for his own deliverance. And in that, in that prayer, I'm sure you can hear echoes of many prayers that you've prayed before. Jonah was 
he was in a really bad spot, wasn't he? Don't think of it anymore as just God's providence to get him out of there. Think about what it is to be devoured by a monster. And perhaps that's also a familiar experience to us in a sort of a parabolic style. When you hide from God, all you have is yourself. If you run away, as Adam and Eve did and as, as Jonah did and as probably all of us have done sooner or later, if you run away from God, all you really have is yourself. And yet, you cannot run away from God. Incidentally, in the first message that, from chapter 1, our pastor David was telling us about his delight in playing hide-and-seek. And do you remember that? And he was talking about his grandchildren. Well, there's a photo I'd like you to see. <laughs> I wonder whether you recognise whose trousers and shoes those are. Do you think you might know? They don't look like Pastor David to you a little bit? It is. It is him. And he is standing in the air conditioning duct opposite the kitchen door. You go, you go out there. I took this photo in 2019 because I thought, what is going on? And um, it was hide and seek at a really serious level. And I thought, I just thought maybe I could help him by screwing the, <laughs> the cover back on. But I didn't. <laughs> Out of charity. Moving on. That's purely incidental. It has no purpose in the, in the sermon. But it was almost as irresistible as turning the drum cage into a whale. I just had to show you that photo. A proper scripture. If I dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. It's from Psalm 139. It, it feels as though it's just custom made for Jonah at that moment, isn't it? There's nowhere that you can flee from God. You cannot hide. You cannot escape God. No matter where you go, he is there before you and after you and with you. And that's true for Jonah. You cannot hide from God. And in the belly of the whale, he was, he was not hidden in the least. In amongst all of the, the dross, all the human ordinary pleading of Jonah's prayer, there is um, a pearl, a little, a little verse that is so wonderful. It's been precious to me since I learned it very long ago. When I was um, in the Church of Christ working as a, as a youth leader, there was Monday afternoon discipleship with our senior pastor, and it was really mostly about memory verses. I would turn up at his office and he would drill me on memory verses over and over and over, and this was, this was one of them. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I've put it on the screen in two versions. The one that's at the bottom is what Natalie and, and Tim read. Who read that one? Natalie read that one. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. It's in the NIV. But if you have a printed NIV from the 80s, it will say those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. And I want to keep using that because it's not dissimilar, but it's so clear to me. And this verse has... It's held my attention for a long, long time, and I was delighted to find it in the passage that we're reading this morning. In the ancient world, idols were, were handmade. They were little things, often portable, small, 
and they turn up in quite a number of Old Testament stories, um, under the saddlebags for Rachel and in various different places. And it was always the great error of God's people was to turn to idolatry, to handmade, hand-fashioned idols. In Isaiah chapter 44, there's a description of the, of the craftsman who takes a lump of wood and shapes an idol out of it with his tools, and then with what's left over, he cooks a meal. So half of the wood turns into an idol and the other half is firewood. He cooks the meal and then he warms himself beside the fire. And Isaiah says, how can this be a god? Why can't the craftsman see that the thing in his right hand is a lie? And it is. An idol is a lie. Jonah didn't enter the whale or the ship, as far as you know, with any idols. He didn't have a little portable set of idols in his pocket. At least it's not in the story, is it? And I don't think he did because he, he knew who God was. He was in no doubt. We know that because he was running away from him. He knew who God was. He didn't have false gods, and yet perhaps he did because he says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So what is, what is the idol that he's talking about if it's not a little handmade one? And this is, this is where it begins to be wonderfully applicable to us. We are no longer in the Old Testament. We're a very, very long way into the future. And yet, this verse in an ancient book has such wisdom in it. Put simply, idols are the endless things that we turn to when we turn away from God. They're the way we cope, essentially. They can be the way we try and control the chaos in our human lives. Sometimes we even try and control God himself with idols. And in the ancient world, they did that too, worshipping a, a, a graven image. It's in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Do not make an image. Worshipping that and believing that the idol itself would give us rain for our crops or fertility for childbearing. Idols are sometimes superstitions that we develop to cope with the uncertainty that's part of our world. They are deceptive practices that help us hide the realities that we just can't tolerate as humans. Drugs that we use to block out pain. Not always the obvious painkillers like alcohol or um, hard and soft drugs in all their varieties, but odd things that we cling to to cope with our life. And, and I think Jonah was doing some of that. One of his idols was running in the opposite direction to the way God wanted him to go. God says, do this, and Jonah clings to an idol and says, not on your life, I'm going that way. Another one perhaps was his deeply bedded hatred of the uh, people of Nineveh, who he did not want to give God's word of grace to, and David explained that to us in some depth. God's grace is the only salvation from the world, and from ourselves, and from sin, from all the chaos but for some reason, humans prefer their own ideas. And that's what an idol is. It's a way of coping. Idols are everywhere. And they're very, very personal. And they can look pretty silly. Another person's idols can make no sense at all. I thought I'd give you a couple of personal examples to get your mind thinking. Because 
it's sort of central to our spiritual life that we fall into this habit of turning away from God and trying something else instead. I have, I have had a long-standing problem with the idol of a new shirt. And you might think that's a bit weird, but when I have a, a new... This is not a new shirt, but it is a nice shirt. If I have a, a, a new shirt, I feel, whoa, fantastic. So much self-confidence comes to me from having a new shirt. That's not right, is it? In Act 17, we read the beautiful phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. In Jesus, we live, we move, we have our being, not in a new shirt to make you feel confident. In Jesus, I live, I move, I have my being. Another idol that I have had to deal with personally sorry, is my height. See, I'm tall. It's a surprise these days when I stand up. People don't expect it. I've always been the tallest person in the room. I don't think I've met a dozen people taller than me in my whole adult life. And I know that I have used that at times to achieve all sorts of things. I can, I can intimidate people just by taking a step towards them if I need to. I, I rely on my height sometimes. I can't do it anymore. It's a bit sad. But I rely on it, again, for confidence. And that's not living in Christ. It might seem incidental and it might seem trivial, but it's not trivial. It's at the heart of my being. And I'm sure there are things that all of us cling to from which we draw life. And yet whenever we draw life from a source other than Jesus, who has given us his life and his spirit, whenever we draw from somewhere else, we are clinging to a worthless idol and we forfeit the grace that God could give to us. Do you see? Do you see? The wisdom that Jonah brings to us in this one line is just so glorious, I think, God's design for us is that we live and move and have our being in him, that he provides us with life itself, not only with the provision of our, our clothing and our food, which Matthew 6 promises us God will do if we, if we put his kingdom first, but life in every sense. We need life given to us, don't we? And if we don't, if we don't have a source of life, we start clinging to false sources of lives. An example, retail therapy. You know that, that phrase? Probably we've used it. I think it's a horrible thing. I think that our, our hair should prickle and it would be terrible for us to say it because it's an admission to idolatry. We all love to buy something new, don't we? But the minute you start drawing the, the, the joy of your life from that source, you have turned away from the grace that could be yours. That's not to say that there isn't legitimate pleasure in a purchase. There is. But it's a fine line to when that becomes life-giving. And you know that you've crossed that line when the next morning that thing that was giving you so much pleasure no longer gives you any at all. And, and, and if you're idolatry to possessions has become addictive, you may have to go and buy a new one, another one. 
If it's an addiction, you might have a house full of little things. Galatians 5.16 says, um, Paul writes, I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. God's design for us is that we follow Christ, that we be filled with his Spirit, that we don't turn away. We're followers, aren't we? We follow Christ. And, and to worship an idol, you need to stop following. You need to turn away from the one that you're following. God's desire and design for us is that we're filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ, that we follow Christ, and that he meets the deepest needs of our heart, indeed all the, the, the needs of our life. We're reading 1 John. No, 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 no. The book, the chapter about the vine. Yeah, John 15. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, that's, that's the Jonah that God was calling. He was calling Jonah the prophet. Come, Jonah, abide in me. We're going to Nineveh. Out of what I put in your heart, speak about my grace to these people. Bear enormous fruit. Bring these people back to me. But Jonah didn't do that. He clung to idols instead. God's desire for us is that we are fruitful people, that our lives bear the fruit of the kingdom. And when we turn away and we cling to weak and foolish things, we forfeit grace and we forfeit fruitfulness. Of course, there are so many idols, aren't there? They're the obvious ones like wine. The Bible says that wine is a gift of God to gladden the hearts of men. I think in Psalms, somewhere, Proverbs, maybe. And we turn it into a terrible thing because we end up addicted to the pleasure that gives or to the pain that it obliterates us from, and we end up addicted. Sex is a similar thing. I remember I heard a radio play once, and in this play, um, the angels are coming to visit God, and they say, God, we've come up with something fantastic. This is an idea for your creation. So it's a pre-creation story. And the angels say, what do you think about this? Sex. It's the best thing in the whole world. And then at the same time, there's these demons going, talking to Satan, and they say, Satan, we've come up with this fantastic idea. It's called sex. It's the worst thing in the whole world. And it's like that, isn't it? The gifts of God are for us either gifts or their distortions, and they lead us into all sorts of nonsense. I once counselled a woman um, a long time ago, and nowhere near here, who had tied herself up into the most extraordinary binding monster. In a, in a, there's a reason I want to share this story with you. It's an unusual story. In a life under significant pressure from more than one tragedy, she fell into the most unusual habit. And one day she said in prayer to God, she was a practicing Christian, she promised God that she wouldn't move that chair if God would do this for her. Now, that possibly makes no sense at all. 
to you. And yet maybe it does. Maybe you can see how that works. She then became addicted to this idea, this way of coping with the pressure, and she began to promise God that she would not move this and not use that and not go through that door until her whole house had become like a ball of rope, just a prison, a monster. She was in the belly of a monster. As I said, it might make no sense to you at all, or you might see how that could happen. One person's idols are so difficult often for another person to understand. It's, we're talking about something very personal here. I reckon the person that knows most about our idols is Google. What do you think? It's, <laughs> it knows exactly what to tell us and what to show us. The idols that we get trapped into are, are very, very, very personal. But Jonah's wisdom is universal. Every time we turn to an idol, we forsake the grace that could be ours. And although he's speaking in the Old Testament, it's a truth, like so many, that, that is realised in the New Covenant because there is always God, there is always grace. And at any moment that we're under pressure, it, there's, there's like a, a fork in the road we can follow our God, walk in the Spirit, and grace will meet our need, or we can turn aside and try and solve the problem ourselves, rely on one of our crutches, one of our coping mechanisms, one of our addictions, and at that point we have forfeited the grace that God was holding for us. And note the turning. You see, we have to turn in order for that to happen. The next time you are tempted, the next time that you are under pressure and however it happens to you, whether it's temptation to, to disobey God, to, to practice sin deliberately, whether it's the, the pressure of life that overwhelms and, and just pushes you towards an opting out mechanism, when that moment comes, know that there is always, without fail, a different path. And that path is the path of grace. The problem is, it's an invisible path. You need to, f with faith, trust that God will meet your need. This is one of the big differences between idols and God. God's invisible, idols are visible. Do you see that? The things of the material world, the temporal world, are visible, and they're so easy for us to grab. God is invisible, and it requires faith, and it requires a quietness in your heart to receive the grace that he offers us. But in every moment, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, when you are tempted, God will always provide a way for you to pass through it. What goes wrong then for us is that we cling instead of surrendering. The secret to Christian life is that we lay down our life. We're, we, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us alive, but Christ living in us. But we cling to the old life. And in that point, we fall into danger. We also fail to wait and take things into our own hands. So many times in the Psalms especially, it says, wait on the Lord, wait, wait. And we fail to wait. And we, we feel as though the danger is right upon us. We have, to, we have to do something now. And so we stop waiting on God and we solve the problem ourselves and we end up in bad places, don't we?
We choose to satisfy, satisfy the demands of our bodies and souls. The first letter of John says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We, we bury ourselves there instead of letting God meet our needs. Rather than obeying God, rather than laying down our life, we often run headlong into the mouth of a monster. In a way, that's what Jonah did. If you've been in a monster, I think we all have. God ultimately owns the monster, and we're still safe. You know, God is with us. We will get out of the monster. But it's horrible to be there, isn't it? The path of grace is available to us. So what can we learn from Jonah? I have found through my long, long life <laughs> that I, I find it very, very difficult to learn from other people's mistakes. Something in me always says something like, ha, I wouldn't have made that mistake. <laughs> True? And, and I think, yeah, I need to make the mistake that everybody else made before I get before I understand, you know, I just seem to be, are you like that? Or can you actually learn from the mistakes of others? It's just a male thing. Maybe if we divided the room, all the men would go, yeah, and all the women would go, of course we learn from other people's mistakes. I don't know about that. But I think I can say for all the people like me, the men in the room, we've got to make our own mistakes. We just can't be told. You've got to actually pick up the, the hammer and the chisel and give it a go and learn by your mistakes. My uncle... I rang my uncle, my American uncle, who was 96. It was his birthday on Friday, and I rang him up. And my uncle and aunt, at ages 96 and 98, have the same birthday. It's so cute. They say, it's our birthday. Isn't that nice? Our birthday. They've been married 71 years, and he is razor sharp. He's always been an extraordinary person. He rang me back about two hours later, and said, do you know what a fulgurite is? Does anybody know what a fulgurite is? Good. <laughs> no, nobody to spoil my story. And I thought to myself, I'm sure I soon will know what a fulgurite is. And he described a scene from his young life where he'd been um, laying in the grass at Long Reef, and we're having a family reunion at Long Reef in a few weeks, and this is part of the story for him anyway. And he said, we were lying in the grass because there was a lightning storm and there, there, was, there were no trees to draw the lightning and we were afraid, so we got as flat as we could and the lightning hit the beach very close to us. And when the storm passed, they went down onto the sand and they found a fulgurite. Now, a fulgurite is sand after the lightning has hit it, that gets fused into a glass tube. They're quite extraordinary things. You can find them on the internet. And scientists say if you dig on any beach long enough, you'll find one. They're everywhere, apparently. I've never seen one. Anyway, and so I learned what a fulgurite was. And then I remembered I did know that word. Because in the Middle Ages, this is, a, this is an illustration about how bad we are at learning from other people's mistakes. In the Middle Ages, for centuries, bells, big church bells and town bells, well, I think they only had church bells, but anyway, they were often inscribed with the words fulgura, 
fulgurite, fulgura, Latin, fulgura, frango. And if you translate, translate that, it, it translates as, I break the lightning. And the medieval belief was that if the thunder starts resounding, we have to send the bell ringers to the church and start ringing the bells flat out because bells have power over lightning. Remember, the medieval world is a bit like the ancient world. It's full of magic and weird ideas. And they believed that ringing the bell would break up the lightning. Now, think about where the bell is. Where's the bell in a church? Huh? And what's over the bell? Yeah, yeah, steeple line covered with copper maybe, something like that. Hundreds and hundreds of bell ringers were electrocuted by lightning strike. This, this goes on into the 18th century, and I've got a little statistic here that is astonishing. From 1952 to 1986, that's 34 years, 103 French bell ringers were electrocuted. That's the 18th century. They're still doing it. Fugura Frango, Fugura Frango. On that year, 1786, the French government outlawed the ringing of bells to break up lightning. That's why they call this era in time the Enlightenment. But, <laughs> but it gets worse because you, you can see how the mentality is this is the truth. It's written on the bell. We've been taught it since childhood. You've got to ring the bell when the lightning comes or we're done for. And when, when the bell ringer gets electrocuted, the human response is not to learn from the mistake. It's just to do it harder. And so we've got to get more bells. We've got to get more bell ringers. We need a queue of them so that if one gets electrocuted, somebody else can take the place immediately and get ring. We've got to ring earlier. We've got to ring harder. Isn't this a bit like our practice of idolatry. Don't, do you see the parallel? We don't, we don't stand back and go, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to rely on God's grace. No, we just bury ourselves further in our addictions. It's a, it's a pattern. But look, it gets worse. Because alongside this belief about the lightning, there was another very strange medieval belief. Everything in the, in the medieval world was spiritual, good or bad. It wasn't science, it was magic. Gunpowder existed for, for a very long time. It was developed in, in China, I think, in, before 1000 AD. Gunpowder was thought to be magic. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. And it's, it's devastating and it's dangerous. And there's really only one place where you can keep gunpowder. Can you guess where that place is? <laughs> in the crypt, in the basement of the church. If the church doesn't have a basement, under the altar. Gunpowder is so dangerous, it's so magical, that only God himself can keep it safe. There's only one place to put your gunpowder. You know what's going to happen, don't you? There's a sound of thunder. Quick! Bell ringers! <laughs> the lightning's coming. Ding, 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 ding. Down goes the bell ringer. The rope brings the, the lightning right to the top 
of the gunpowder store. This happened, there are records of hundreds of medieval churches being blown apart by stored gunpowder. Sometimes hundreds of tons of gunpowder in barrels with steel bands around the barrels. Now, you know what happens when you, when you make a bomb, how you put steel around it to make it worse? Thousands of people blown apart. And yet, for centuries, all they did was the same thing over and over again. More bell ringers, stronger ropes, more gunpowder. Get all your gunpowder and bring it here. It's only safe when we put it under the steeple. It's crazy, isn't it? But it's true. The last time it happened was in about 1850. A church exploded because it was full of gunpowder. 1750 is about when Alexander Bell invents the lightning rod, you know, with his kite and all that. What a crazy picture about how hard it is to learn from other people's mistakes and what, what insight that gives, to me anyway, about how we pursue our addictions and just keep coping, keep coping, cope, do the best you can, just knuckle in there, keep coping. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. We're ready to conclude. Can I ask our musicians to come back for us? The last verse in chapter 2 says this. Verse 10 of Jonah 2. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God's discipline in our lives isn't punishment. Jonah wasn't in the whale to be punished. He was in the whale till he saw what he needed to see. And in the whale he saw that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that should be theirs. Sadly, Jonah has more lessons to learn, and so next Sunday morning one of our preachers, David or Matt, will be exploring that a little bit further. If you've been in the belly of a monster, if you recognise in your life how futile idolatry is, how our addictions, how our, our little terrible habits that draw us away from God, if you, if you recognise that, can you this morning hold on to the truth that in him we live and move and have our being? I had so many thoughts about monster vomit. Like, imagine that. <laughs> but then I had this thought. In Matthew, it says that, that Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights, and, and Jesus calls this the, the sign of Jonah. He says that Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. Jesus didn't say that about himself. I'm getting a bit chronologically confused here. But the point is, death could not hold Jesus in the grave. And similarly, the monster could not keep hold of Jonah. It had to vomit him up. We will rise, won't we? We will. We're guaranteed. We are the people who have been given freedom by God. Death won't hold us down either. We must learn, instead of clinging to stuff, we must remember to, to be quiet before God, to silence the, the clamour of our inner restless, urgent thoughts. We need to face God prayerfully, wait 
a little bit longer. Wait for God to meet your need. Don't sort the problem yourself. Be filled with your spirit. Sorry, be filled with his spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the spirit because there is always, always grace so that in him we live and move and have our being. Thanks, Bob. Oh, 